So this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our study of church history. Uh, we're looking at the early church, which is approximately a period of uh, 200 years that we're going to be looking at. So it's A.D. 100 to uh, A.D. 300, and this really was an uncertain time for the church. Uh, the apostles had all been martyred. We learned about that last week. Uh, they've all passed on, and so we're dealing with the second, third, fourth, generation of Christians. Um, as we learned last week, this was a time period of great persecution. There were these uh, persecutions that would take place. They would be spread around the, the Roman Empire. Hundreds of thousands of Christians would die for their faith. Uh, but there were also periods of, long periods of peace. And uh, there, were, there were even some generations that never saw persecution. Um, but really what we see in this time period is uh, the Christian faith grows from this small band of Jewish believers uh, really to a worldwide uh, body of believers. And with, with all of this growth, there's some growing pains. Uh, if any of you guys have ever been a part of an organization that grows all of a sudden, you know that there's always growing pains. And so we see that in the early church. Uh, in response to that, we see some leadership functions begin to form, we see the canon of Scripture begin to form. So this morning we're going to be taking a look at that, um, as well as we're going to take a look at how they interacted with each other, how they worshipped, and how they interacted with the world around them. Um, Ryan mentioned last week that context is important, and uh, I do think it's important for us to understand the environment that all of this was taking place. So we're going to do just a little bit of, of role play. I'm not going to get anybody up here to, to do anything, but... Um, let's just take ourselves out of Texarkana for a moment and just put ourselves in, in the sandals of our early Christian brothers and sisters. So let's say instead of Texarkana in this nice dry uh, gymnasium in 2013, we're actually in Smyrna. Now there is a Smyrna, Texas, which is just a few miles from Atlanta. I'm not talking about that one, but I'm talking about Smyrna, which is in uh, Western Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. So we're in Turkey, it's 155 A.D., and we're this small group of Christians, much like we have in here today. Um, we're small, but we're growing. Um, we spend a lot of our time together. We eat together. We share our homes. We share our finances. We meet together on Sundays, like we're doing this morning, uh, to worship. We also meet together many mornings, maybe before work, or when we go out into the fields or go do our craft. Uh, we meet together uh, before dawn to sing and worship and pray. Um, we're greatly encouraged in our faith by our leader. Our leader is a guy named Polycarp. He's our bishop. And Polycarp's a special man because he knew an apostle. He, he was discipled by the apostle uh, John, and we all know that John walked with Christ. So Polycarp has firsthand knowledge of Jesus' life here on earth. He would have known a lot of the nuances of Jesus' life. He would have known his teaching, obviously. He would have known about his crucifixion, uh, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. And so we're greatly encouraged by this. We have firsthand knowledge of Jesus. Um, even though we don't have the Bible at this point, we know about him. Uh, the Roman authorities are suspicious of us because we refuse to worship the pagan gods of the Roman Empire. We also don't want to worship Caesar as a god. We pay our taxes, we're good citizens, but we don't like worshiping anyone other than the one true God. 
And they, because of this, they fear that we want to undermine their authority. They think we might want to start a revolt. So they, uh, as they often did with local churches, they decide to make an example out of our leader. So they think if you cut off the head of the organization, maybe they'll all go away. So they arrest Polycarp. Now Polycarp at this time, he's no spring chicken. He's well into his 80s. In fact, he's 86 year, years old, we believe. Um, and he's brought before the Roman governor of the province. And it, they're in this crowded arena. Uh, there's people all around. And uh, the governor begins to question him. The governor eventually asks Polycarp to recant his faith by worshiping Caesar as a god. Polycarp refuses to do this, and he states that he can't do this because of his faith. He even offers to, uh, offers to explain his Christian faith uh, to the governor, but the governor isn't hearing it. Uh, he, he just responds to this by telling Polycarp he's going to throw him to the lions. Polycarp simply says this. He says, bring on the beast. The governor responds to this by saying, if you scorn the beast, I'll have you burned. And Polycarp really seals his fate here when he says, you try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire in hell that never goes out. So you can imagine, I mean, this is more dramatic than any courtroom drama uh, that we see on TV. I mean, this is amazing stuff, and this really happened. This is real. This is what early Christians, if we were alive in 155 AD, this is their reality. This is what they lived with. And, and so I, I do think it's important for us to also remember that this is reality today. Uh, there's one organization that I saw that estimated that over 200,000 Christians were killed last year alone and largely due to their faith. So this is going on in today's world. And I, I do think that we're called as a church to support those that are going through this. We're not facing this in America. Uh, one day we might, uh, and some of us might be called to face this in foreign lands, but um, we really need to be just supporting them one way or the other. And I do think this is a, a major reason why we need to be studying church history. Um, I enjoy history. I think it's because I had a mom that drug, like when we would go on trips, she would stop at every historical monument. They would take us like six hours to get to Dallas because she would want to stop at every little thing. And I hated it when I was a kid, but it gave me like a real love uh, of history. But I do understand this isn't everybody's cup of tea. It's kind of dry sometimes. Um, it's kind of academic. But uh, I do think it's important for us to study it because it, it gives us strength. When we see uh, the early Christians facing these kind of persecutions, we see that God gives them strength to endure it. And in fact, most of these martyrs went to death really with great joy great joy that their life could be a sacrifice. And that's one thing that Polycarp, uh, as he was being led uh, to the flames, he, he prayed that his life would be an acceptable sacrifice for God. And he prayed that he could be steadied in the fire. And from all accounts, uh, he never wavered. Um, so let's get on to some of the functions uh, of the early church. Um, one of the main functions, obviously, was worship. And uh, one thing we need to look at is where did they meet? Um, they didn't have church buildings. There were some church buildings, that Christian church buildings, uh, that began to be built in the 200s. That was kind of few and far between. So they mostly met in homes. They would meet in some of the larger homes. Maybe some of the more wealthy uh, members of the church would open up their homes to everyone. And so that's where they would meet. 
They would also sometimes meet in caves or maybe some more secretive places when heavy persecution was going on if they were trying to avoid detection by the authorities. So when did they meet? Um, they met, as I said before, during many days during the week, uh, early to worship, but they, they mainly met on Sundays, as we do today. And they called Sunday the Lord's Day. And they met on Sunday because that was the day that Christ uh, was resurrected. So what did they do at services? There were really four main components to their services. Uh, the first was scripture reading. Initially, it was mainly from the Old Testament because that's what they had. Uh, and then they, they didn't throw out the Old Testament. It's very important to, to know that, that they considered the Old Testament to be divinely inspired, and they, and they used it from the very beginning of the church. Um, as copies became available uh, from the Gospels, from the Book of Acts, and later on the Epistles, and then Revelation, they began to incorporate that uh, into their services. They also read from some non-scriptural texts, uh, like the Epistle, Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, which was a, a fiction, a work of fiction, Christian fiction. Uh, the next aspect to their service was the sermon. Now, they didn't have Jared up there throwing it down uh, every Sunday, and their sermons really were pretty weak. Uh, in fact, one we have some manuscripts of some of the early sermons, and one historian says this about them. It's, it's not really nice, but he says that they have no literary value and betray confusion and intellectual poverty. So he didn't have a lot of good things to say about their early sermons. But what they lacked in preaching, they more than made up for in prayer. And this was another integral part uh, of their worship service. Um, their thoughts on prayer were really incredible. And uh, the early Christians were a praying people. They centered their life around prayer. Uh, Tertullian, an early church father, advises Christians to pray at all times before all things, including eating, bathing, walking, going to work, and so on. And he writes this about prayer. Uh, prayer blots out, our, blots out sins, repels temptations, quenches persecutions, comforts the desponding, blesses the high-minded, guides the wanderers, calms the billows, feeds the poor, directs the rich, raises the fallen, holds up the falling, and preserves them that stand. Clement of Alexandria, another early church father, uh, writes that the life of the Christian should be a life of unbroken prayer. So they had an, an amazingly strong prayer life. We can learn from them on that. Um, and then the, the fourth aspect of their service was singing. Um, they would mainly sing, early on, they would sing psalms and some poetic uh, selections from the New Testament. They did have a few hymns, but again, the hymns were pretty weak. They weren't very good. Uh, we kind of have to wait later on for the great hymn writers. Um, any questions about the worship service at all? Okay. So the next function of the church was baptism. Um, this is where we start to have some disagreement within the church. And there were really three main questions about baptism that the early church struggled with. And the thing is, is that we still struggle with some of these questions today within the church as a whole. And the first question was, who should be baptized? Now, there was really universal uh, agreement that converts, new converts, should be baptized. They did it a little differently than we might think, though. They weren't immediately baptized after they converted. 
when someone repented of their sins and confessed faith in Christ, they would then go through a two or three year instruction period before they were allowed to be baptized. But they all agreed on that. Uh, but the real question was, should infants, children be baptized of these new converts? Should the whole household be baptized? And uh, this debate arises from portions of Scripture we see in the book of Acts uh, that would say so-and-so and their whole household were, were baptized. So, <clears throat> again, this is a, a debate that still goes on within the church. And I think it's really important for us to note that there really no, was no universal agreement in the early church on this uh, aspect. Um, the next question is, is when should one be baptized? Now, they all agreed, like I said, that converts should be baptized after a period of instruction. But as time went on, what they began to see is that people were waiting longer and longer to be baptized. They would convert, they would go through their period of instruction, their catechism, <clears throat> and then they would, would wait until they were on their deathbed to be baptized, uh, many of them. So they would be baptized near death. And, and that kind of brings up the third point of debate about baptism that we see uh, in the early church. And that was, what does baptism actually do? Does baptism itself, does, does it forgive sins? Or is it just an external declaration of sins already forgiven? This was a big debate within the church. And actually, uh, the idea that baptism actually forgave sins, as we move on, begins to start to take hold within the church. <clears throat> and as this view uh, began to grow in popularity, um, pastors, the bishops within the church, still wanted people to go ahead and be baptized, but they had a problem because some of them were teaching that baptism actually itself forgives sins. So people were wanting to wait. So what do you do about the sins after you've been baptized, uh, but the sins you commit afterwards before you die? And so this is where some of the dangerous doctrines begin to take seed within the church. This is where the doctrine of penance begins to grow. Um, Tertullian and uh, Origen, two early church fathers, two uh, kind of philosophers within the church, <clears throat> they both speculated on these things. I do think it's important to note that this was speculation. This wasn't declaration. They weren't declaring this as doctrine. But they did speculate that sins committed after baptism could be paid for by some self-imposed uh, purification, including good works, prayers, almsgiving, and that's where we see some of this start to creep into the church. Um, we see a pattern develop that things that were speculated on sometimes by the early church were made doctrine in the medieval church. And we'll talk about that more uh, as we go on. One thing that, that Christians did agree on about baptism for sure was, was um, how to baptize. Uh, we have this document. Really, it's an amazing document. It's called the, the Didache. And uh, it's, an, it's an anonymous church manual which speaks about practices of the church. It gives us a lot of information on how the early church did things. Uh, it's from the second century, and it says this about baptism. This is how to baptize. Give public instruction to all, the, all these points, and then baptize in running water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you do not have running water, baptize in some other. If you cannot, in cold, then in warm. If you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the 
moreover, the one who baptizes and the one being baptized must fast, and any others who can. So basically they believe that you should be baptized by immersion in running water, and preferably cold running water. Um, if, if there was no running water available, then baptize in some other form of water. Um, if that wasn't available, then you could pour uh, three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but what about sprinkling? Where does that uh, begin to come in? Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Um, you notice the point that I made about baptizing in cold water uh, as Christianity, been, Christianity began in a really warm climate, uh, kind of in the Middle East and uh, Turkey, places like that. So as it began to spread to Northern Europe, that's a much different climate. It's cold. And so if you try to baptize somebody in a river in northern Germany in December, you're probably going to kill them. They're going to get hypothermia. And you remember, they didn't have antibiotics or anything back then, so they get you know, a chest infection and they die. So that's where sprinkling comes in. Uh, that's when, when we start to see sprinkling within the church. All right, any questions on baptism at all? Let's move on to the uh, Lord's Supper. Uh, we know quite a bit about how the Lord's Supper, uh, how this was done in the early church from a guy named Justin Martyr. So you can probably guess from his name how he died. Uh, he, he was killed for his faith. Um, but he, he, he left quite a, quite a few writings about the church. And he says this about the Lord's Supper. At the end of our prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. Then the president of the brethren is brought a bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. And he takes them and offers up praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and the Holy Ghost and gives thanks at considerable length for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all the people present, present express their joy, joyful assent by saying, Amen. Then those whom we call deacons give to each of those present the bread and the wine mixed with water over which the thanksgiving was pronounced and carry away a portion to those who are absent. We call this food Eucharist. So we do know uh, that this was done in most churches every Sunday. We also know that this was a closed uh, to the public. So praying, preaching, and singing, that was all open to anyone who wanted to attend. But at the end of the service, they'd usually do the Lord's Supper, and deacons would stand up and ask people who were not baptized into the faith, who were not baptized Christians, to leave the room. So this started to uh, add to some of the suspicion by the Romans. Uh, this was all secretive. So they, you know, we kind of talked about last week how uh, uh, they, some people claim that Christians were cannibals. This is probably where a lot of that began um, with the Lord's Supper. So uh, next we, we have the church function of instruction. And I talked a bit before about how when someone came to faith in Christ, uh, there was a period of instruction before they could be baptized. Uh, we call this instruction catechism, and it was really an essential function of the early church. They spent a lot of time doing this. It wasn't like you converted, you got a little weekend course, and you were good to go. They didn't just leave you uh, like that. Um, it was a period of really formal education. Um, and this had a few purposes. One purpose 
was keeping out those who really didn't believe. Uh, there were Roman spies who would try to infiltrate the church by claiming to be converts, and they wanted to make sure that these guys weren't spies, that they really believed uh, what they were confessing. And another thing was that they wanted people to understand what they were confessing to. They wanted to understand the faith. But this also provided a period of transition from worldly living to Christian living. You know, they lived in a time... We live in a society where we have Christian ideals. So sometimes the transition isn't as difficult from a, a pagan life to a Christian life because we, we live in a, a culturally Christian society in a lot of ways. It's less and less that way, but it's still that way to some point. But in the ancient Roman Empire, this was totally new. All these ideas were, were totally new to them. And so there had to be a time period for them to adjust uh, to the Christian life, and they wanted to make sure that they had done that before they became uh, a, a part of the body. Um, and uh, some of the instruction, a lot of it we're, we know about from the, the Didache, uh, that book that I mentioned before, and I'm just going to read uh, a few things from it about this. Uh, the Didache begins uh, by saying this, There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but there is a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this. First, you shall love the God who made you. Second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you shall not do to others what you do not want done to you. A bit later in the Didache, it says this. My child, do not participate in divination, for it leads to idolatry. Nor shall you be an enchanter, astrologer, or make false sacrifices. For from all these grows idolatry. And it goes on and on. So it's really just a lot of practical instruction uh, on the Christian life. As I mentioned before, this usually took three years, uh, so this was a long period of time. And uh, after they completed this instruction, they were allowed to be baptized and they were allowed to participate in communion. All right, so let's move on to, uh, to Scripture. Um, we often refer to the canon of Scripture and the word canon is just a Greek word which means rule or standard. Um, there really was not much debate about what was Scripture early on in the early church. As I said before, they all were in agreement that the Old Testament was divinely inspired as the apostolic letters and the Gospels uh, were passed around. Those were all incorporated into Scripture. So really by the end of the second century, we have the Old Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, we have Paul's letters. All of these are in common use already within the church. And Christians really didn't think too much about what was canon until they were challenged uh, by a few heretics. And uh, it's really interesting to see that a lot of church doctrine and a lot of church theology is formulated in response to heretical teaching, to false teaching. And uh, I'll just talk a little bit about a few of the heretics that inspired this. Um, one was a guy named uh, Marcion, and he was a rich uh, merchant, uh, but he uh, kind of developed his own little uh, cult or sect, and he argued that two different gods existed. He, he said that one was the evil god of the Old Testament who created matter and the world and evil, and it was just this cruel, evil god. And the next was the loving God of the New Testament who had sent Jesus to release, release Christians from the 
material worlds and draw us into the spiritual world. So Marcion formed his own Bible. Uh, so obviously he rejected all of the Old Testament. He hated the Old Testament. He hated Jews. He was very anti-Semitic. And uh, he cut out a lot of the New Testament, cut out Hebrews, uh, Paul's letters. And he, he heavily edited the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Um, kind of like uh, we see Thomas Jefferson did this uh, just a little bit, uh, but he did this quite a bit as far as editing the Bible. So he was taking away from Scripture. Uh, the other challenge to the canon was from a group uh, known as the Montanists. Now, the Montanists went the other direction. They accepted uh, Scripture, but they wanted to add to it. Uh, they believed that through the power of the Holy Spirit, revelation continued, but the problem was a lot of their revelation really didn't jive with what we already had in Scripture. And so we see a two-sided challenge here to the canon. Uh, there were groups trying to take away, and then there were groups trying to add to it, and we see this today, don't we? I mean, in a lot of different uh, aspects, we see people trying to do this. This hasn't stopped. This is one. I think this is one way that the devil attacks the church. Uh, so the church had to think long and hard about what made books acceptable, um, and they came up with some really some simple standards. Uh, first, the documents had to have been written by an apostle or by a close friend of an apostle. Second, it had to agree with the faith and doctrines. Uh, in the acknowledged and undoubted letters of the apostles. And finally, it had to be functioning as Scripture widely within the church already. So these are the standards they had for books being uh, included into the canon. So most of the New Testament was really accepted without a lot of debate. There was some debate on the book of Hebrews because uh, we, did, we don't quite know who wrote it. Also, the book of Revelation because it's always been controversial. Um, so we really don't see the first complete list of all 27 books of the New Testament until 367 A.D., and we'll probably talk about that a little more next week. Uh, but all of these, even though we don't see them all together, they were all widely used within the church way before that time period, uh, very early on. So having Scripture really, you know, it doesn't do us a lot of good to have this Scripture if we can't disseminate it out to the churches, if we can't copy it. So that kind of leads us into copying and disseminating. Uh, in today's world, we, we don't really think about this much because it's so easy. Uh, we don't even have paper copies of things anymore. We just get on our iPad or our phone and we look up uh, whatever we want and we have it all at the tip of our fingers or we go to Kinko's and, and get everything copied in 10 minutes and be done with it. But they didn't have that, obviously. So where did they go? Uh, they mostly went to libraries. Now, libraries in the ancient world during this time had slaves, and these were educated slaves, and for a fee of what is in today's money about 80 cents a copy, they would copy things for you. They were very good at it, and they were extremely efficient. In fact, they were so efficient, they were as efficient as the printing press in the 19th century. So the early church spent much of its resources, they spent a lot of time and money getting, getting copies of Scripture made. And we do know that they were very good at it because most of the churches had Scripture. And we know this because every letter that we have from the early church already assumes that that church has access to the Scriptures. So they know that, the, that they were widely uh, disseminated within the, within the church. So any questions on that or anything we've talked about so far?
All right. So that kind of leads us into uh, church leadership. In the early church, we see three really clearly recognized offices. We have bishops. Uh, we have elders that are sometimes also called presbyters. And we have deacons. Uh, the, the didache says this about church leadership. It says, uh, you must then elect for yourselves bishops and deacons who are a credit to the Lord, men who are gentle, generous, faithful, and well-tried, for their ministry to you is identical to that of the prophets and teachers. So in other words, each local congregation was responsible for electing their own leaders. Now as the church began to grow, uh, the way the church would grow within cities, so like let's take for example Rome, um, you would have this group of believers, they would get to a certain size, and then they would plant a church, maybe in another neighborhood, another area of town. When they would do this, the same leadership would stay intact. So the leadership of the original church would also be the leadership of the church plant. So you get, there would be like one bishop for Rome, okay? And that bishop had a lot of power as the church grew. He performed all the baptisms, he personally blessed all the bread and wine that would go out for communion. He would bless it, and then the elders would take it to their uh, congregations. And really, probably the big mistake was the bishops were also solely responsible for the finances. So this is where we start to see uh, some issues with the money. Money always does that. And so it, it contributed to some scandal and some abuses later on. Early on in the church, they didn't have issues with this but it begins to become a problem later on. So the bishops really were the central figure, and then they were assisted by the elders and the deacons. In theory, initially in the church, all the bishops were equal, but in practice that wasn't really the case. Obviously the bishops of the bigger cities like Rome, Alexandria, they begin to have more prestige and power, especially Rome. And we see this in Rome because obviously it's the capital of the Roman Empire. There's a lot of political grandeur there, uh, but also Peter and Paul were martyred there, so there's a lot of church history there. And so Rome was kind of recognized as being this great church. Um, so there were some bishops uh, in other places who were calling for the Bishop of Rome to kind of take this more authoritarian uh, leadership. They really needed leadership. As I said, they were growing quickly they needed some authority, and so they started to look to Rome for that. There wasn't complete agreement about that, obviously. There were some uh, bishops who did not like the fact that uh, this Roman bishop was, was getting so much authority. And so we start to see some of the seeds uh, of division beginning to take place as early as the first, or as early as the second and third centuries. The church does not split until the 11th century, way down the road, that's when we see the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church split. We'll talk about that later on. But some of those seeds, it's important to remember, some of that was beginning to form right now, some of those seeds of division. Any questions on that at all? Yeah, it's second and third, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Jared, you got anything on that? 
you have any idea how where they got the idea for bishops? Because it's not necessarily scriptural. And yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I think it, it really began, from, from what, I've, what I've read, it really began as kind of a leader of the local church. So there would be a church, a small church, 40, 50 people, and they would kind of elect a leader. There, there would initially be one leader, and they eventually started calling him a bishop and, or a presbyter. And I think as they grew, you know, they needed this guy up here. And like I said, the, the leadership didn't split. So when churches would split... When churches would plant, they wouldn't elect a new bishop for each church, a new pastor. So there would be this guy that, who's over everyone, and then they would have elders and deacons serving underneath them. And so that's just the way the leadership function formed initially. And that is pretty early on. Okay, so um, we've kind of talked about a lot of things, and, and we see that there was some disagreement within the church, but... Really, I don't. I don't want you to think that there was that they weren't unified because really, at this point, the early church is very unified, um, and they they're a very tight knit uh, group. Uh, they loved each other, and one of the main functions of the church at this time was support, and they were big on support, and uh, so they really had two areas. That, okay. They had two. They had two areas that they were uh, really big on support, and one was supporting persecuted Christians. Uh, so when Christians would be thrown into jail, uh, it wasn't like when you when you go to jail here where you're fed and, and you're given taken care of to some extent. When you're thrown in jail there, you were not given any food or any clothing. So. Um, the church would be responsible for caring for those individuals. And this is one way that a lot of uh, non-Christians came to faith because maybe they would be in prison or maybe they would be a jailer, someone working in the prison, and they would just see the exceptional care that the church would give for its own people. People who weren't within their family, you know, people who weren't within their earthly family, and they were just amazed by this because that wasn't common at this time at all. Charity was not common at this time at all. Um, that kind of leads us to the next group, which they supported each other, uh, persecuted Christians, but they also supported the needy. They supported the needy within the Christian community, but it's important to remember they also did support people outside of the Christian community as well. And uh, this included widows, orphans, the exceptionally poor, the lame, and the elderly. People really who couldn't take care of themselves and uh, we talked about this a little bit last time, how this was so successful, um, this really brought a lot of people to the church. Uh, a lot of people converted because of the exceptional Christian love that they saw. This was new. This wasn't something that was common at all. We think about charity today as being common. Our government does charity. Uh, Non-Christian organizations do charity. Uh, it's just a part of our culture. But that was not the case before Christianity. This is a Christian ideal which worked itself into the Western world and has become a part of our culture. So it's almost if you, if you tell someone these days, 
uh, who's not a Christian, who, who maybe is just a real secular person, if you told them, oh, we don't need to do any charity, we don't need to take care of anybody, they would be appalled. They would think you're crazy and evil. But in the Roman world, that was just the way it was before Christianity. You didn't, you didn't take care of people like that. So that, this is a Christian ideal, uh, charity is, for the most part. Are there any questions about support at all? All right. So I'm just going to, we got about, what, five minutes, Jared? Okay. So we'll just get a little bit into the uh, apologetic and apostolic fathers. Uh, the apostolic fathers, these were individuals who were trained directly by the apostles. So we mentioned Polycarp earlier. These were guys who would have been discipled uh, by some of the apostles. We have Clement of Rome, who was uh, uh, probably discipled by Paul. He might be the same Clement that's mentioned in Philippians. Uh, he was an early church father in Rome, and we have some letters from him that really argue, and, and you could see why maybe he was one of Paul's disciples, because they really argue for our reliance on faith and grace for our justification uh, rather than works. Um, we have Ignitus who is a bishop of, of Corinth and Antioch, and he was uh, famous for his martyrdom. He was actually fed to the lions in Rome, but on his way there, he wrote a series of letters to the churches, and he was really uh, writing, and he's really asking for churches to stay unified. He's asking them to submit to the local church and to a single bishop, and uh, he's, he's just calling for boldness and clinging to Christ in the faith of, face of persecution. We've talked about Polycarp. We've talked about the Didache, um, the Shepherd of Hermas. I mentioned that was just a work of Christian fiction. Uh, you can read that. We have we have copies of that uh, today, and they did talk about that some. They did uh, read from that in some of their early worship services. Uh, I, I haven't read it. Uh, I've heard that it's really not very entertaining, but I, I don't know. You could, you're more than welcome to read it. And then I'm going to murder this, this name here. It's Epistle of uh, Dognitus. I'm, I'm not good with these names. But anyway, uh, he was a guy who was a pagan, and he was asking about Christianity. So we're not sure, sure who the author of this letter is, but it has some amazing uh, quotes about the Christian life. And I think I'll just end on this. I just want to read this quote from this epistle because I think this gives us a really uh, good idea of what the Christian life is all about, what it was like then in, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, but what it's like for us today, what it should be. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor by language, nor the custom which they observe. They neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a, a, a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. They follow the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as pilgrims. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry as do all others, they beget children, they do not destroy their offspring. I just want to stop right there. Um, that was a common practice 
in the Roman world is if you didn't get the sex of uh, the child that you wanted, maybe if you didn't get a son, you would throw that baby and, and leave him basically in a garbage dump to die. So this was radical that Christians did not do this. They share their food, but not their beds. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws of their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evilly spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay with insult and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body that are Christians in the world. So I think let's just stop with that. And uh, man, let it be said, let that be said about us. That's amazing. So that's it.